Welcome to the Fundamentals Podcast, Cinematic Release. Are you okay there? <laughs> Just kidding, <laughs> Fat Albert. <laughs> I used to be able to do a really good Fat Albert in my day. Hey, yeah, so anyways, <laughs> that was Jeremiah, this is Corey. Um, we're joined by Elizabeth. Hi. Because Elizabeth and I decided we needed to invade another podcast, so we're invading <laughs> Jeremiah's Cinematic Release this time. We will take over all of them. <laughs> well, the first episode I did wound up like being no good, so this is our first episode. Uh, no, this is my second episode, period. Oh, well, you don't count. Oh. <laughs> That's my special place. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about uh, reboots, reboots, remakes, and adaptations, something that a lot of people um, have been crying about for a very long time. Uh, I think that it's been going on since beginning of Hollywood. If not longer. If not longer, especially with terms of like other media. But as far as movies goes, we've been adapting books, remaking old movies, and rebooting franchises since the silent era. Um, Ten Commandments, that's a remake. Charlton Heston is a remake of a Cecil B. DeMille silent movie. Hitchcock remade a lot of his own movies. It's a thing that's been going on. Why do you remake your own movie? Because well, you didn't do it right. Because, like I said, uh, it was a remake of a silent movie, the Charleston Heston one. So we got to do it in color with sound. Um, I'm talking about Hitchcock. Hitchcock? Uh, his, the original Man Who Knew Too Much was black and white. So he just wanted to redo it in color? Yeah. He did, he, not only that, but it was like a black and white one made in Britain before he had a lot of control. Okay. So he remade it in America in color with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. Well, good for him. Yay. I'm going to turn my phone on silent. That's a good call. Um, all right. So with that little bit of background, we actually have four films we're going to be talking about that there are remakes that have just come out within like the last month. Month and a half. Month and a half. Yeah. Um, so they're like the most recent of the recent. Of the recent of the recent. Um <laughs> So, uh, the four films we're going to touch about uh, today are Going in Style, Ghost in the Shell, <clears throat> Beauty and the Beast, and Power Rangers. And I think we all three have varying opinions on the success of these four movies. Well, maybe maybe not Ghost in the Shell. I think we all agree on that one. But we will get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to kind of go down the list. Um, first, though, I know... Jeremiah and I have kind of talked a little bit about how we come up with this whole reboot remake to begin with. Oh, that's money. That's... Yes, but do you care to elaborate for well, the rest okay. of the class? It's one of the things where the less risk you have on some, the less risk you have on a project, the more reward you're going to have because name recognition, not star name recognition, but like just recognition of the plot itself. People will be like, oh, I know of that, or I know that. I'm more likely to put my money on that, as opposed to something like Moonlight, which they don't know anything about. Right, so that's the bigger gamble, right. as far as your money goes. Well, one reason why, the only reason why Moonlight got made, because it got made for so little. Right. Wasn't the budget like $8 million Yeah, it was something ridiculous. Yeah, versus these uh, 100 to $200 million. Yeah, like, and not, not only that, if you have a 100 to $200 million movie, you're not going to be able to pay a lot of homage to Ho Xiao Xian or uh, Wong Kai Wai, which Moonlight did. <laughs> I totally know who those people are. I'm sure you do. You want to share for the rest of the class again? 
Uh, Ho Xiao Xin and Wong Kai Wai are Asian filmmakers. I'm not so sure about Ho Xiao Xin. I just know the name. Okay. Wong Kai Wai is, I just blinked on the country, but he did In the Mood for Love. Okay. Which, if you see it, it's one of those movies that makes you realize we've been making movies wrong all this time. <laughs> okay. I will take your word on that. Okay. Yeah, you would hate it, I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, honey. All right, so let's go ahead and get this kicked off. Um, <clears throat> we're going to start with the most recent one, Going in Style, just because that came out this last weekend, and Jeremiah got to see it. I don't know if got's the word we want to use here, but Jeremiah <laughs> saw it. It was viewed. Um, the original Going in Style is a 1979 Martin Brush movie, and I've never seen it. It was shocking because it had George Burns and Art Carney and Lee Strasberg, and I remember going through a giant George Burns phase when I was younger. Like, I used to love the Oh God movies, and I had, I had like, a book of Joyce Burns quotes. No, you I know was... what? I'm not surprised. You love film noir, and you never saw Public Enemy until we got married. That's... I'm never letting that die. That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut and personal. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it. But the uh, remake is by uh, Zach Braff, mm-hmm. and the, since the original was in 1979, it had a little bit more grit to it. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just all three, just three old guys knocking off casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. Okay. The remake is three old guys robbing a, their own bank because they've robbed them of pensions and they're sick and tired of the banks not getting punished for their crimes. So, like, the remake is more Robin Hood, less crazy 70s. Yeah. And not only that, but, like, they're trying to justify their actions. Uh-huh. But the way they justify their actions, like, the most generic sort of post-2008 crash Rage imaginable. Well, it's Zach Braff. Right. I mean, there's not a whole lot of effort required. I know. But yeah, I will say that for Zach Braff, this is a very just like mainstream movie visually. Mm-hmm. Like the visuals in it, you would see in an episode of Leverage. It's nothing too like avant garde like his other movies, like Garden State, or that one movie he crowdsourced that bombed horribly. Yeah, we're huge Zach Braff fans. Can you tell <laughs> oh, that? yeah. The Chinless Demon. Know. <laughs> Ouch. I don't like him very much. I don't normally care for his work. I think it's very pretentious. Yes. Or at least he assigns a great deal of importance to it more than what I think the film warrants. But, I mean, the reviews I have read seem to indicate that this is probably the most grounded film he's ever done. Oh, yeah, easily. So... It, but it works not because of Zach Braff, but because you have Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, and Alan Arkin. Yeah. Yeah, that's the th- that would be the only reason I want to go see this, just to see, like, three actors of their caliber. Well, and then they're just playing variations of the characters they always... You've seen them play better in better movies. Alan Arkin's the grumpy old man, Morgan Freeman is a respectable old man, and Michael Caine is these... You're only supposed to blow the doors off, old man. I don't know if Michael Caine has a type, but that's interesting. He does. It's a blue-collar worker type. Because if you actually look at I just know him from Batman. I mean, I I know of him before Batman, (laughs) but, like, the most recent work, all I can think of is Alfred. The first Michael Caine movie I ever saw was Without a Clue. And it was Sherlock... It's a Sherlock Holmes comedy, and it was Watson is actually the brains behind the entire operation, and Sherlock Holmes is, like, a drunk, out-of-work actor who's a moron. Huh. It's brilliant. (laughs) But it's not this film. No, it's not. The Soaping Kingsley plays Watson. 
So they could remake that film. Oh, yeah, God, I I'd watch that. I'd watch that. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a there's a drag there's a drag queen component that probably doesn't age well. Well, you know, you but, can always cut that out. Yeah, easily, or at the very least, you know, do it better. <laughs> Might be one of the few benefits of doing remakes and reboots is that you can take something that was problematic and smooth it over for a modern audience. Magnificent Seven. Yes. Yeah, I do think that is an appeal, though, for like the reboots or remakes. Maybe not necessarily an adaptation, but especially like when we're taking an existing entity, like film entity, and we know at the time when it was made, right? There were things that we didn't recognize were. I don't want to use the word problematic because I think it gets used too much anymore. <laughs> racist, because that's yeah, usually what it racist is. Racist or some kind of. Bigoted Sexist. or not yeah. really yeah. okay, not something we would accept. We want woke. Yeah, <laughs> the three of us should never use that word. I know. <laughs> no. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was something we weren't really aware of at the time or enlightened enough at the time. And I think you can take an an argument like you've got the Looney Tunes approach, where they say, you know, we're going to leave this in here because to take it out would be to act like these prejudices never existed at all. That's but what re-releases. I, yeah, but I think, like, with the adapt Not the adaptations, but the remakes, the reboots, I think it's a chance where you can correct it and evolve the material. Right. So, like you were saying, um, Jeremiah, a few months ago, did an article on the site about five movies that needed to be rebooted. Well, yeah. and <clears throat> Or remade. And one of them was Back to the Future. And I remember a lot of people yeah. like, saw that and they were coming in for blood. And then they actually read what he wrote. And like, oh, okay. Because I think there is a lot you can explore by taking something and maybe resetting it to a modern time to see what's applicable. Well, going back to the whole Hitchcock and Cecil B. DeMille thing, they weren't the only directors to do that. In fact, a lot of directors would just take the same story mm-hmm. and just place it in a different setting and explore different themes. Um, there's a Humphrey Bogart movie in which he's an escaped man mm-hmm. running and he's on the run from the law and he ends up hiding out on Mount Rushmore. The director made it, remade that movie again as a western Instead of Mount Rushmore, the outlaw is hiding in the Navajo ruins. Nah, that's that seems that's problematic. Yes, sorry to use the P word, but I'll let it slide. <laughs> but that's an example of the we made it both for technology reasons and both because they really enjoy the sudden the, the idea of the story, and so if you move the setting, you can explore different themes in it, or do the same themes but do it differently. Right. In well, fact, the, can, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the concept of the remake as we understand it now is just sort of odd because, this, okay, so we'll take like theater plays, like they're exactly what Jeremiah was describing, is that you will have the same story with the same characters and it's probably going to be redone a hundred times over a hundred years because people like familiarity, but they didn't have the modern notion of copyright law, right. so it, which is sort of weird how modern that is, so you didn't think of it as a remake. Right. Well, not only that, but certain directors, um, Lisa, in the old Hollywood system, they had like a certain thing they were obsessed with or a certain idea they really loved. And so they yeah. found a way <laughs> to incorporate that idea in every movie. And because you tend to just start catering to the idea, movie, the movie started to seem like John Ford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Westerns. He did over 200 movies. He did just do Westerns, but that's what he's known for because he loved Westerns. Right. And he also loved the idea of revisioning the West and his own image. 
So I guess my thing, then, going back to this particular movie, was it worth the remake? The both of the time. Mm -hmm. The 1971 is... Exactly like a movie you would see in 1970. There's no real motivation. They're just being rebellious. It's the time of the Vietnam War, Watergate. And so there's a sort of anarchy against, uh, feeling in cinema. The rebellion against systems. The Zach Baff one, there's an anger at the banking institution. And that's very much of this particular time. You see a lot of um, the most violent year was a sort of take on the American dream. And so this is basically that. Uh, I don't know if the remake is worth it. It's not that entertaining. <laughs> um, like, it's fine. I've seen worse movies. Maybe I've... worth to rent instead of, you know, pay the full 17 bucks to go watch. Yes, but I'm also, I hate using the worth to rent thing because the movie's meant to be seen on the big screen. Says you. I know, just saying. I have a 50-inch television, all right? <laughs> so. yeah, no, it's still not like a 70-feet screen. That's yeah, true. Well, you yes. know what? We don't have big enough places that we can watch something on a seventy-foot screen every time we want to see it. Just so, saying. someday, Corey. What? <laughs> someday. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna move on um, from going in style to another G movie, uh, Ghost in the Shell, and this one has had a lot of discussion <laughs> on multiple, multiple. Topics. Um, there's a the, one of the big things is do we is film really the correct medium to try and adapt an anime from? It was a film. Right. Just because it's anime doesn't mean it's not a film. I was gonna say I just saw a great anime a couple days ago. And I was like, right, but I mean from animated to live action, and this is something we're gonna have to talk about with Beauty and the Beast as well. But right. I have opinions on this. I know um, you do. I know you do. This is why you're here. Oh, this is why I'm here. Okay. <laughs> we want your opinions also because Jeremiah didn't see the first Ghost in the Shell and I was bored to tears when I tried to watch it. So, I um, to see the original just in the remake. It it That's takes some good. patience, I have to be honest. I, okay, here's here's the thing about Ghost in the Shell is that if if you're going to ad- adapt it to live action, um you well, first of all, you'd have to have a Japanese cast, but you really have to have a... Does it have a Japanese director? Probably not. No, percent. Okay, because there's certain things about Japanese sci-fi that are so fundamentally different than American sci-fi. Like, Akira is another really great example of this, is that all of the cultural um, baggage in Akira and Ghost in the Shell and, similar, and Trigun and Cowboy Bebop, um, it doesn't really translate to American culture very well. So you no, need someone who, but they, but they play, a lot of times they play very well to an American audience. I mean, there's a reason why Ghost in the Shell is one of our anime sacred cows. It's usually one of the five, which would be, when someone asks you, like, what animes are worth watching, usually people will say, Cowboy Bebop, Ghost in the Shell, um, oh my god, I'm blanking. Uh, uh Evangelion. Evangelion. Yeah. Eva- uh, that's another one. That's another one that, um. That the cultural differences are what makes it seem unique to an American know audience. That you could honestly adapt Evangelion to something that a mass American audience would um, 
understand, especially when the original audience is still debating on what the hell that shit was. Uh, no, we know exactly what it was. It was Christian mythos adapted into a Japanese story. Evangelion is literally fake deep. The reason why they did the Christian mythos is because... <laughs> I know, I com- I'm completely serious. This is The reason why they did the Christian mythos is because it's not familiar to people in Japan, because Christianity just isn't that common. And so the director had even said... If we had known it would have gotten so popular in the West, we may have not gone with that because we just used it because we didn't think that our audience or our target audience would recognize it. See, here's my thing is I know the American audience is still in certain circles arguing about those endings. Shinji is Jesus. Let it go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so going back to Ghost in the Shell, um, one of the things that Jeremiah brought up... in his review, is that at the time, in the 89, and even to an extent in the 95, um, kind of like update of Ghost in the Shell, the, the topics they were talking about were kind of revolutionary. We were just starting to get to this place with technology where we were really, you know, it may have been something for us to actually think about versus, you know, 2017 and, you know, technology that, some of the stuff they were talking about then is kind of ubiquitous now. And, you know, you have people like me where I'm like, yeah, no, shut up and take my money. I'll be the first in line. Make me a cyborg. Yeah. Um, well, there might be a significant reason why Japan has sort of a touchy and rocky relationship with advanced technology. Well, yeah. <laughs> there's some there's some cultural baggage there that just doesn't exist in the U.S. And that's well, something that Ghost in, Ghost in the Shell taps into. A little bit. I didn't notice I was a little, like, a sort of unease with the idea of technology. Yes. And I figured that had to do with the post-World War II. Yes. Right. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is, yeah, there is that unease, but as far as, like, remaking it and what I understand that they did in the 2017 was they did your Japanese fake deep Christianity, except it was, like, fake deep philosophy. <laughs> well, this is like if you're going to remake a movie that is not originally from your country, because they used to do that all the time as well. Magnificent Seven's <clears throat> remake of Kurosawa's uh, uh-huh. Seven Samurai, uh, Kurosawa remade uh, Genuine Wars Lower Depths based on a Russian play. <laughs> and every time you do that, you have to make sure that you understand the source material, but you root it firmly in your own culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that way you don't have any misrepresentations of the other culture, because what you're trying to do is tell the story through your culture's eyes. Well, that's where the themes need to carry over. It says that cultural touchstones don't always carry over, but themes usually cross cultures. Yeah. Right. And I think, and I remember reading, there was, Jeremiah showed me an article, it was like last week or the week before, where they got like four or five Japanese actresses, and they had them watch Ghost in the Shell. And I remember them saying, like, they really should have made this just, like, American. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. They made a point, like, I would have had no problem had they used to be American. Like, he used to be Bob. Right. <laughs> and here, here's the spoiler, 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 spoiler. Okay, you've had your warning. Turn back now. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's too late. Um, the way they try to skirt around white Scarlet Major Kutsun... Kets... Matsuki? Yeah, I just made up a word. I wasn't even a... Okay, well... I might have been a little basis. I apologize. <laughs> Elizabeth, help us out here. 
Um, I have to actually. So that Katsunagi. What's your girlfriend major? That's the name in the Yeah. Movie. Okay. Well, the major. While Elizabeth looks that up, um, the way they tried to skirt around that was the major was originally a Japanese woman, and then she kind of died, boaty, murder boated, whatever, and she, yeah, she got murdered. Okay, she got murder-boated, and they brought her back and shoved her into a white woman-slash-android's body. It's actually the surprise reveal of Get Out. They just made it the plot of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, I remember when Jeremiah was asking me about this, he's like, I'm not wrong, am I? This makes it worse, doesn't it? It's like, yes, yes, it makes it so much worse. Yes, it does. Well, and, like, I know some people are like, well, that's showing because she doesn't have any identity. It's talking about the lack of identity and a lack of self. I'm like, yeah, well, they could have done that with a Japanese actress. You okay, okay. A Japanese actress, and it's still racist. But you're still implying that, <laughs> uh, you're still implying that the, that a white person is the default. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if she has no identity, then you're implying that the white person is the blank canvas, which is sort of funny on a meta level, no, but that's I'll not what they were going for. No. I'll grant you they probably didn't realize that's what they were doing. No, of course they didn't. But that's most of Hollywood. They don't realize these things that they do are offensive. Well, it's either that or it's that like... And they don't even show her face. No, they don't. You never no, see they don't. By arm. This is one of the things also that, like, if you're making a major big-budget Hollywood movie, there's a lot of crap you're worrying about. And sometimes things fall through the cracks. Or you have questions about something, and they're like, that's nice. Do this today, or you're off the movie. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I understand, like, the amount of pressure that was writing on this. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, you asked when you wrote that review, like, who really wanted this? Oh, yeah, who, there's, there's no demand for this. I know there are fans of the movie, and I've met them, and they're, like, kind of psyched, but they weren't clamoring for a live-action, modern-day remake of Ghost in the Shell. I would have preferred an animated remake. Yeah. Well, and I think, and that's the, with anime, especially from what I've known from the community, it's like, well, I'd just rather get a new animated version. I don't want them to um, make a live-action version. I mean, the, the scars from Dragon Ball run deep. <laughs> they run so deep. Oh, my and God, And now why? we have Ghost in the Shell to add on to that. I want you but to Ghost, Ghost in the Shell Dragon seems like Ball. a functionally good movie. Yeah. Huh? It's like a Ghost of the Sh- movie. It's not okay. like a horror shit show train wreck like Dragon Ball was. Yes, it's so at Dragon least Ball there's that. Double Dragon. That's just as bad. That's just as bad. <laughs> that's that's the video game adaptation, right? Yeah. yeah. That's another yeah. thing that probably shouldn't be adapted to movies, because we have not figured out how to do that well. That would be a fun episode. Uh. <laughs> oh my god, the stories we could tell. Especially if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Okay, that's a different type of adaptation versus, like, what we're trying to do now with Assassin's Creed, where it's just this kind of soulless, meandering, give us your money. Well, and they even, like, Michael Fassman apparently is a huge fan of the games. Apparently has no idea why the games work, but... I don't think Ubisoft has any idea why their games work. Or they don't. I I really just have a personal vendetta against Assassin's Creed because they screwed up the French Revolution. A lot of people have a personal vendetta against Assassin's Creed. <laughs> like, and here's the thing. Well, we're going to get to a dirty little secret right here. The biggest crime in Ghost in a Shell, aside from the whitewashing, whitewashing is just so fucking boring. You said. How do you make good. this boring? Exactly. 
<laughs> well, I understand because when I watched the first one, I was also incredibly bored. Okay. <laughs> it, it can be meditative, right. which is... That's same, diplomatic. Akira has this problem, too, that it can yes. be a bit meditative. Well, like, like, and it's one of those weird things where people will, are more forgiving for offensive things if it's at least somewhat entertaining. Like, if you laugh in a movie, and you're like, okay, that was that was problematic or racist over there, but <laughs> this is funny yeah. Like, as long yeah. as you're a problematic fave, as long as you admit. Right. Because Versus... if you're entertained, you'll forgive a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for some, it's it's why Adam Sandler keeps getting away with making his stuff. Somewhere, a, a large quantity of people find him funny. Uh, this saddens me, disturbs me to no end. Have you ever heard the um, the producer's tinfoil hat theory about Adam Sandler? That he's basically just been pulling a long con producers over and over again? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. I, yeah, I honestly believe it. That's the See, only explanation. It's either that or whatever he makes a movie uh, located wherever he wants to go on vacation and take his fence. Right. That's really common in Hollywood. Okay, so <laughs> feeling back from the conspiracy theories a little bit, I do want to move on to Beauty and the Beast because it's an interesting contrast because Ghost in the Shell were taking an animated film and adapting it as a live-action film from an entirely different culture and we're trying to somehow carry that over versus you know beauty and the beast it was made for you know audiences in the united states as a disney film to begin with and then we decided oh let's make a live action adaptation of it well the reasoning behind bill condon taking over beauty and the beast the live action adaptation i know you love that name um it's basically the same it's not because it's a dirty joke it's because he doesn't shut up about him is (laughs) Bill Condon's reason is the same as Gus Van Zandt's reason for remaking Psycho. He didn't want someone else to do it. He didn't want someone else to do it and mess it up or do some weird weird thing with it. Because the original remake of the uh, Beauty and the Beast, they're going to have Gaston be a war hero and be like and have him suffer from PTSD. No. It was going to be this really gritty thing, and Bill Condon's like, no. You either remake the movie, musical and everything, or you don't. I'm doing this, and we're going to do it my way. I mean, Cons- that's- Go ahead, Elizabeth. Considering what I've been hearing about Mulan, which actually, I have to be honest, I hate the songs of Mulan. I know, right? Like, I know, right? Philistine! Actually, I'm kind of with her. There's only like one song in Mulan I really enjoy, and that's I'll Make a Man Out of You. I hate that song. Wow, okay. I don't know what Like, that's just, yeah, that's literally, like... <laughs> but anyway, so they're remaking it, but they're doing it without the music, so they're kind of, I guess, almost aging it up, which yeah. I'm actually intrigued by this. I'm curious what they'll do with it. But Beauty and the Beast, I'm so glad that it was a straight remake, because I am... I wanted this. Like, I am the mysterious demographic in the U.S. <laughs> who wanted a live-action remake. Also, that it's Emma freaking Watson in it. Like, who could possibly be more perfect than her. Um, we have opinions on that. Yes. Gugu <laughs> She's stuck playing a feather duster when she could have been Belle. We we are forever salty about that. Alright, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, but they, and this again goes to the thing where, like, yes, they remade it, but they really didn't... They updated it in terms of diversity in the cast, but they really didn't bring anything new to it. They just made a live-action version with a couple of songs. Well, I mean, but it literally is. It's just an adaptation from the animated version. Right. In my opinion, maybe just a little bit too faithful of an adaptation. 
Okay. I think sometimes people try to... Like, the Alcry and Mulan over them not being any music. I was like, yes. See, that's interesting you brought up Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Yeah. Because that's one of the most common criticisms for that remake was like, it's almost exactly like the original. Well, he, he said he did it like that because he couldn't imagine making a movie any other way. <laughs> it's like, he's like he didn't care if the movie bombed. He was like, I just want to do this the way Hitchcock did it. And then the bombs, oh, well, you still have Psycho, but I don't want anyone else doing, like, a really bad version of Psycho, even though there already was one with Anthony Perkins. <laughs> there was a whole Psycho series in the 80s and 90s. Okay. My thing with Beauty and the Beast is I love the spectacle of the animation, of the animation, like, you know, Be Our Guest. And when I saw the trailer, like, that first, like, full-length trailer where you got to hear them singing Beauty and the Beast and they had all the other little cinematic flourishes. I lit up like a kid at Christmas. Yeah. And I was bound and determined that I was going to see this bitch in theaters until I got, like, bronchitis out the wazoo. And (laughs) it was that one weekend, Elizabeth, where I sounded like a swamp hag. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I sounded like like a laryngeal walrus or whatever. <laughs> she didn't she didn't sound like the same person. Yeah. I just say I love you for using the word laryngeal. I don't know if that's a real word, but we're running with it. I don't think it. it is either, but I love you anyway. We're we're running with it. Um <laughs> So I actually didn't get to see it and I'm I still need to go see it, but another movie came out after that that I saw that I fell in love with and we're going to get to that movie in a minute. <sighs> but I remember watching the trailer and just thinking that at the um live adaptation of that was just like oh my god my childhood feelings that i thought had withered and died just came raging back to the forefront well like when they do the when they go big for the musicals that's when the movie works best mm-hmm. like be my guest be be our guest and the uh, opening song the fantastic yeah go big or go home yeah it's the- disney what what were people expecting <laughs> like well, okay one time I was watching Muppets Treasure Island with a friend, and they started <gasps> singing, and they were like, why are they I singing? Mean, I was like, it's a Muppet movie. You've never seen a Muppet movie where they don't sing? <laughs> I but literally every Muppet movie is a musical. Like, the, the Muppet movie is one of one of the best musicals of... Oh, it, no, not you two. A fucking men, Elizabeth. A How could you not man. love the Rainbow Connection? Like... <laughs> Someday we'll find We'll find it. it. The rainbow, rainbow connection. connection. Your the lovers, the, the dreamers. Okay, we're good. We're moving Okay, on. okay yeah, so I might be in the minority with this. Um, I actually love the Disney live-action ad- adaptations, because I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I fucking love Disneyland. Yeah, no, like, we, we, we know that. Well, I grew up with Disney. That's how I got into movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. I used to watch the Disney Channel back before it became the Disney Channel, as it's now known, back when they just showed old Disney movies in the right. Mouse Club. Uh, it's so, not yeah, just no, that, I though. Too. It's not <laughs> just that. Not just the animation. Not just that. It's the spectacle of Disneyland itself, of the actual live people in the costumes, of being right. immersed in the world. That's sort of what these movies remind me of. Like, Maleficent is one of my favorite movies. I know Absolutely. a lot of people hated it, but I adored no, it. No, we actually liked it. Oh my god, I finally found some other people. <laughs> no, um, okay, Here, here's a little bit of a and background the... story. Jeremiah and I had recorded... I'm oh, sorry, I thought Elizabeth was talking. Oh, go ahead. 
Uh, Jeremiah and I had recorded um, what we tried to record a podcast before this one where we ranked the Disney adaptations. <laughs> and, you know, that's when the mic gave out for like half the show. Um, but we actually talked about all four of the adaptations. Right. Um, I think Cinderella was my favorite and Maleficent was his favorite. Maleficent is my favorite, but Cinderella is technically the best in terms of like proficiency and how everything is done. Right. Maleficent has jagged edges, but I love it for its jagged edges. And Angelina, Angelina Jolie is on point in that movie. Yes. Right. That uh, was well, that's what one I... of the best castings I've ever seen for a, oh, for any film. Well, that's what I really enjoyed about the Disney remakes is, like you said, Elizabeth, it's go big or go home. And they're always yeah. go big. Like Jungle Book, my God. Oh, my God. They're doing stuff with mocap and and in Jungle Book that I just wouldn't even two years ago I would have said this isn't possible. Right, like and that's an example of something you need to see on a big screen. I saw it on my computer, but I want to see it on the big screen. Oh, I but, saw that in theaters. <laughs> I saw um I saw Maleficent on the plane ride home from the first time I went to France. Oh damn! And I still loved it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's a great movie. I don't know why we have Charlton Copley in it, but <laughs> who knows. But, no, like, the thing I've noticed with the Disney adaptations is they're getting more and more stridently faithful to the source material. Except apparently for Mulan. Except apparently for Mulan, and I'm, that's why I'm excited for Mulan. Because one of the reasons why I didn't love Beauty and the Beast is because it's basically the animated movie. Okay. Well, that's your opinion. I know. <laughs> and I say it loud and proud. I, know, I just have, I love Emma Watson. So, I mean, that, that's obviously heavily coloring my opinion. And I do love the original film very, very much. Well, like, I love everybody in Beauty and the Beast. I love Sam McKellen. I love you. I, I love Ewan McGregor because he seems to have more fun being Ewan McGregor in movies than most people do. Yes. <laughs> He's like a younger Christopher Walken. He really A is. bit, yes. Like, he'll do anything and just give it 120%. I love Dan Stevens from The Guest, although I didn't like his Beast. Like, I didn't like the CGI. What did you think of The Beast, Elizabeth? Um, I thought it was fine. The Okay, so I actually, I, I know so freaking much about the original. Okay, so um, I work in a hotel, and uh, Glenn Keane, who animated the original Beast, actually stayed in our hotel. Oh, nice. And so... My my the night auditor and I actually recognized him, and so uh, I was like, "Oh, Glenn Keane, you know that's funny. That's the same name as this animator." He's like, "Oh, that's me," and I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Kind of so nice certain... Glenn Keane. He probably doesn't get recognized. <laughs> I don't think so. So he was downstairs for like an hour and a half with us. Like, I still have the drawings to this day. He did drawings for us, and so I was um my uh my girlfriend at the time lived in France, and so of course she was she's French, and so of course she loves Beauty and the Beast. So I asked him to draw the Beast for her. And so he was talking about how originally when he designed the beast that um, the the balance or the trick was to make him scary, but still make him human enough that it was realistic that Belle was going to fall in love with him. So he talked about how like, like, oh, we know he's got sort of the buffalo thing going on and, you know, part part wolf. And he goes, but he said, um, it's the eyes. The eyes are the only part that's really human. That's so so considering that that was the original objective in the way that Glenn Keane had designed the character, I think the CGI beast actually does a pretty good job, despite probably being a little softer than he needs to be. He's a little bit softer, and he has, he's a, like, when they take a shirt off, he has, like, clearly man pecs. 
Yes. And yeah. That's seems- well, this is a family movie, and there's some uncanny valley stuff that I think even it's a family movie, so there's no need to include include the first stuff. Yeah. I'm just saying, it's like, it would be even weirder if he opened his shirt up and there was, like, this little row of... Uh, just a side note for Elizabeth. Have you seen the uh, original Belle Labette? Yes. You know, John Cocteau, what's your opinion mm-hmm. on that? Um, I don't know if I can really give what it's been so long since I've seen it. <laughs> okay, no. Okay, here's the other thing, though, as I've seen so many adaptations <laughs> of this story, because, like I said, you know... I, I dated a French girl for a number of right, years. Like, absolutely. I yeah. If if there is any adaptation of this, I have seen it. Um, but still, they run together. Di- they all run together. But honestly, like Disney is still my favorite because oftentimes Disney feels like the only the only version of the story that does anything different with it. Right. That's really weird to say, but it's the only <laughs> one that really break. That's the only one that breaks away from the mold. Although I really like to see someone go back to the original source material. Oh yeah, the. Uh... The actual fairy tale? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's again, because of the money, that probably won't happen. Yeah. <laughs> no, because, I mean, Beauty and the Beast, it was nominated for an Academy Award. It's one of the best films ever made. It's very clearly one of the pinnacles of animation for, from a technical standpoint and from a direction standpoint, from a music standpoint. It's almost a perfect film, especially for a Disney film. Does, for a Disney musical, Beauty and the Beast is the best. Nothing will ever top it. Well, maybe, but... <laughs> as of right now it stands yeah as of now it stands as the pinnacle and because it's such a pinnacle it's so difficult to do something new with this story because everyone's going to compare it to that right well not only that but the director for Beauty and the Beast is perfect for this movie I even said yes. it in my review he's directed Candyman Farewell to the Flesh Dream Girls two Twilight movies <laughs> Gods and Monsters like all the themes in Beauty and the Beast He's dealt with his entire career. Yes. Fantastical romances, Twilight. Doomed romance, sadly Twilight, but also Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh. The other... The monster and the princess. Right. Um, Gods and Monsters, he's... Oh, Gods and Monsters, he's very much dealing with the other and what it's like to be an outcast. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... For me, it's not even, like, the history in there. It's just there's a lot of bright and shiny things, and my inner child likes it. <laughs> yeah. And in, so at some point, like, especially when we're talking, like, the Disney movies or stuff where we're doing reboots, which we're going to talk about here in a minute with um, our next film, when we're talking about, like, childhood properties or things that you really have this nostalgia for, if it doesn't kind of reach in and kind of punch your inner child right in the face and say wake up then i to me that's a mark of it didn't do its job yeah yes because if you do if you do actually do a good job on something like this people who remember the original will love it Mm -hmm. it is possible (laughs) i was like the only person who loved indiana jones uh kingdom of the crystal skulls I liked like eighty five percent of it. Like I had a, it made me feel like I was twelve again. It did its fucking job. Yeah, I had fun with like, it. They're like, oh, the fridge, the stupid. I was like, this is a man who rode on a, the outside of a submarine when it was underwater. The fridge gives you problems. I had Shia LaBeouf problems. Okay, that's a legit issue to have. I understand. Okay. <laughs> I was able to overlook Shia LaBeouf because I got Karen Allen and Harrison Ford and John Hurt. 
and Kate Blanchett you know, just doing great. Yes. <laughs> you know, I am. Um, I've made this joke before around the site and articles and podcasts, but I am Seal Clappy McGee. I if you sufficient. <laughs> If you sufficiently, because you know, because Kylie and uh, Kylie and Julia have the seal clap joke. Um, if you sufficiently immerse me in a narrative, I am seal clappy McGee. I will not pay attention to plot holes. I won't notice problematic content. I am just seal clapping my way through something. I only start to nitpick when the immersion is broken. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying before. Once it starts getting boring, yeah, the spell wells off. You're like, okay, I see what you're doing, jackass. Exactly. Okay, well, I'm going to segue this on because I feel like you two are going to keep talking about Beauty and the Beast until we're out of time. Well, yeah. Power Rangers is actually a great example of seal clapping. Um. Okay, for me, I, I'm going to say this. I have absolutely no shame. I no, have no hasn't. shame in saying this. I have seen this movie five times. Oh my god. You beat my 300 record. That movie did something for my inner child. That I I would still go back and see it a sixth or seventh time. I want you to know I I'm, I think both of you have issues with the three hundred and the Power Rangers thing, but if it makes you happy, <laughs> it can't be all that bad. A show I exactly. thank you for your love of that Truffaut. So you know what, you just <laughs> bite me. I want you to. I want to congratulate you for actually saying his name correctly. Yeah, well, I'm on air, so I have to try. <laughs> um, no, the Power Rangers movie, though. I mean. Obviously, this is a very, very deep universe. Um, it, <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Universe. As it's far a deep as, universe? It is. Shut it up. actually it's is because it's expansive. It's okay. not necessarily, yeah. it's not deep. In, it's not, it's deep not thematically. As as like, yeah, it's not thematically deep, <laughs> but like, as far as like how much is in it, it's okay. freaking huge. I'll give it yeah, a- it's not, this is not Tolkien. This is more okay, Pokemon. Not insult There's, people. Okay. There's at least 15 other different iterations outside of the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers of Power Rangers. You've got, like, Power Rangers Zero, Power Rangers Ninja Force, Power Rangers Ninja Jungle Force, Power Rangers Turbo, Power Rangers Space Rescue. Ninja Jungle Force? Yeah, yes. that one. That sounds racist as all fuck. Anyways. No. You're, you're overthinking it, Jeremiah. Just yeah, you're you're way overthinking this. Imagine, imagine if you were a marketing consultant and you had to sell a bunch of playsets. That's <laughs> roughly, roughly how they create each new iteration of the Power Rangers. Is how well will this translate to toys? I feel like that's sort of jaded, but they they um, they like to they pick a theme and they stick with it. But you, the thing of forget. it, sorry, go ahead. The thing of it is, though, is this franchise has come so close to ending three or actually like four or five times now oh easily somehow always managed to keep on ticking somehow um i remember back when um saban actually sold it to disney and then disney did their thing and they got tired of it and they nearly dropped it two or three times and then saban actually got his hands back on the property took it over to nick where it's, you know, going now, but they have kept this franchise going through many, many iterations. So you have, you know, a good three, maybe four generations of viewers who have grown up with the Power Rangers. Now, Jeremiah is an old man, and, you know, this was after his time. I, I liked it when it was called Voltron. Defenders like I said, of the universe. he's a cranky old man. Um, 
I am just on that age where I was able to enjoy it when they were first out, you know, like, the original recipe Power Rangers. I was right in the middle of it. Yeah, so you've got, like, three or four different, like, three or four kind of-ish generations of Power Rangers fans. You've got the baby boomers who tuned in for it anyway because their kids were watching it and they got sucked in. You've got the tail end of the Gen X, you've got Millennials, and you've got Generation Z. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see them try to take and reboot a franchise that is, as far as the expanse goes, very, very deep. Well, and not only that, but going back to something Elizabeth said about how cynical version of they just try to sell toys. Mm -hmm. Most of my childhood love of cartoons came because they made the toys first. Right. Mm-hmm. Came up with the cartoon mm-hmm. to sell the toys. Yeah. Like when Michael Bay talks about being faithful to the Transformer mythology, I'm like, the Transformer mythology is by my shit. Yep. <laughs> well, like, a lot of a lot of childhood stuff is like that. Like, what's yeah. Pokemon? Like, that was my generation's thing because I was eight when the first game came out in the U.S. So, gotta like, get them all. yeah, gotta catch them all. It's the great. The marketing writes itself. Well, no, no. Okay, Transformers. What is the purpose of a Transformer toy? It transforms. Uh-huh. Only into a car or a weapon if you're a Decepticon. The Transformers uh, company came out with a line of toys in which the Transformers didn't transform. They were just miniature toy figures. and the, But they also were sold with cars for them to drive and planes for them to fly. It feels wrong somehow. <laughs> the Transformers <laughs> didn't transform. <laughs> the basis of the toy... Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I love the '80s and this absolute cynical money grab. <laughs> I'm so glad that I was barely—I I was born in 1989, so I'm just barely <laughs> made in the '80s. I'm so glad that I missed a lot of this. <laughs> well, and like, but in that vein, though, the Power Rangers movie does do a really good job in actually trying to give heft and weight to a thing that really isn't doesn't have that much heft and weight. That's what I actually really liked about the movie. Is I don't know if. You guys have seen the 95 movie? Oh, uh, my with God. Ivan Ooze. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was just such a cheap, yes, let's sell merchandise. Much like Power Rangers. And, uh, but what I appreciate, yeah, it was very true to Power Rangers. Like, yes, it's toys. And, I mean, yeah, they do have, or they try to tell some kind of story to it. But what I really liked about the movie was they actually went for building a mythos for these kids. Yeah. They gave them legitimate backstories. Yeah, they had legitimate backstories. They weren't perfect. I mean, it wasn't like a dark and gritty reboot. Well. Well, compared, okay, compared to actual Power Rangers, which had a giant wrapping pumpkin. That's that's my thing. The actual Just don't think too hard. This is really dark and gritty compared to that. Especially. I know, but I'm talking about when people say grim, dark, and dark and gritty reboots. This is not dark and gritty. Okay, there's Power Rangers, which is what I would consider a reasonable aging up of the content with the original audience, while still staying relevant to younger this is children. What that movie did. And then there's what they've been doing with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, okay yes, thank you. <laughs> that, that thank which you. is which is a um, a contemporary piece, <laughs> so related. Um, but what I really liked about this was they do tap into something I appreciate about the Power Rangers series right. is 
partially because they shot over in New Zealand and Australia to save money. Right. But those casts were actually very racially and ethnically diverse. Absolutely. Yeah. And the movie follows vain with that. There's like one white ranger and yeah. he's not He's the leader. He's the leader, but he's not like a dude bro. Right. He's actually fairly he's, empathetic. He's a pretty nice guy for a jackass. I mean, when we first meet him, the guy... Well, yeah, but when we first meet the Pink Ranger, she's even worse. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, he's a really nice like, guy. Like, these, these... They're kids that they have flaws. They're, like, yeah, but realistic you need, flaws. But you need to have this sort of dynamic anyway, because it's, like, uh, like the, t- the, the... Actually, most 80s cartoons with a group were like this, where they each character... They have characters who represent the four humors. Oh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> So this is what, I know, right? I have to elevate this conversation. But that's elevate what the Power Rangers the is. <laughs> well, I want to congratulate you because it's really hard to elevate the discourse when talking about 80s cartoons. <laughs> there is some, like, there is some meat there. Like, they're using tropes and formats that I don't necessarily think the writers understood. It's just that <laughs> they knew that this is a good way to tell a story, and then they just use that over and over again. That's why it resonates with people. Because that's like when you ask people, like, which Ninja Turtle are you, or which Power Ranger are you, people will usually pick the one that's most similar to them. Right. Well, it's the same thing with Harry Potter. Which Hogwarts house would you be sorted yeah. into? Exactly, um, yes. But yeah, what I thought they really did a good job with was they flushed the ki- the kids out that they weren't necessarily corresponding to one of those humors. They were kind of their own people. Well, I also like that they did give Zoidon a little bit of a character. Yeah, he was a little bit of an ass. Yeah, I kind of like him. And I liked, you know, as far as representation went, um, Billy is the first autistic superhero we've had. Uh, Trini, the first LGBT, like, openly acknowledging it. And I'm not going to say, oh, this was just everything, but I think for what it was of this being a, you know, a teenage girl saying... I don't know what I am, and I don't have the word. I don't have the vocabulary or the knowledge to figure it out yet. I thought that was very true for me and my experiences when I was a teenager. Caveat: first in film, yeah, because yeah, there are plenty film. of gay superheroes. Yeah, like, first, come, first come on! Film, here's the thing: Power Rangers somehow managed to beat DC and Marvel to this. Go figure. Um, but yeah, it's amazing I, how behind the films are actually when you think really about it. It really is, and how far ahead, like as far as casting and diversity, this movie was. And it well, was again, yeah. Power Rangers. The money. Well, again, but like, it's Power Rangers. Like you said, they filmed in New Zealand, and I'm talking about the movie. Okay, well, like the movie itself, while it looks expensive compared to the Marvel. Well, yeah, the movie. Only, oh God. The movie only cost, and I say only. This is comparatively. It was only a hundred million dollars. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, Call of, and it that, looks amazing. I think there are there are video game or I would say Call of Duty is easily topping double that per an iteration, easily. <laughs> yeah, no, it's one of the things. Where, like hundred million is nothing for a triple A release, whether it be film or games. The less money you invest in the movie, the less chance you have of it flops that you lose money. Exactly. And so that's basically DC, as we know, puts a lot. <laughs> A lot of money in the movies. So does Marvel. I mean, they're normally 200 to 250 yes, minimum. They're happy when it makes money. Batman v Superman. There's also the star power. DC was pissed that it didn't make a billion dollars. Right. Well, well we can't all be the Dark Knight. Like, I'm right. sorry. Heath Ledger is dead. Let it go. <laughs> right. 
Well, I'm sorry, it's kind of cold, but I want that as a t-shirt. Keith Ledger is dead. Let it go. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing I really liked though was like you can't tell that was only a hundred million. Yeah. It easily to me, I think it easily holds up against Mm -hmm. the Marvel or DC, and I think if that's going to get a sequel, it's going to be because it is so cheap comparatively to shoot, and it's already made up its budget. Like a lot of people, like the movies we grew up with were made by people who grew up in the Roger Corman culture of making movies for cheap mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. making money and then making a sequel to that and then making a little bit less money. But you always want to keep a certain amount between the budget and how much you make. And when the gap closes too widely, uh, too close, you go, okay, we're done with that. We're moving on. Yeah, but this is like, this is just business sense. Like, yeah. you, you make something, you take out a loan to make something, and then you make back the loan plus a third. It, that's usually a good sweet spot to hit. Yeah. And then you take that, that profit, and then you invest it back into your th- franchise, and then you keep this going perpetually. Yeah. Like, this is b- business 101. People don't make movies just for funsies. There no, is... and here's the thing. <laughs> yeah. And here's the other thing. You know Power Rangers, as far as toys come out, that's going to make bank. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is going to be it maybe not like quite to the level of cars, but this this franchise is a merchandising gold mine. Oh, that is. Right. And I would think even if it right now it's made like 117 million and it hasn't yet opened in Japan and China. Right. Oh, it's going to do really well in China. So, my guess right now is even if it didn't make any more, they would probably give it a sequel just to see if it can build off of, like, the Pitch Perfect phenomenon. Right. It mm-hmm. was a modest success for the first one. The second one was a runaway. Yeah. Also, they've got that cash cow with the merchandise. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And merchandising is what everyone is after, because that's where you make the money. Right. It also reviewed well, which is, you know, kind of... It had mixed an... reviews... There were a lot were... of people like Jeremiah who were old fogies and were like, meh, meh, meh. but they're like the Power Rangers generation, our generation, they're just like, it's fun. Well, it's like when friend. I say, when I say it reviewed well, what I mean is, is it's a true popcorn flick in the traditional sense that people who right. love this franchise, who love this thing will get more out of it. But people who don't can, will probably walk away saying, eh, it was okay. Yeah. Which there is go. good. Like, that's a good, that's a really good yeah air quotes bad review to get and it's okay like that's that's great that's not vitriol the worst way if your worst view is the cast makes us worth watching that's fantastic mm-hmm. yeah yeah so like I mean, that's that's a great review because you yeah. don't have that review for ghost in the shell no no <laughs> well, a lot going on ghost in the shell didn't work power rangers it's a fun popcorn flick if you like the power rangers as a kid you're gonna love it right um, like I said, I obviously love it. I've seen it five times now. Well, you voluntarily. Said, you said the five times you've seen it every time the theater's been full. Uh, that That is an interesting point. Like, when I've gone in, and Whoa. I live in Los Angeles, so there are more people. But when I've gone in, and it'd be either the weekend, or in the smallest theater they have, or on a weeknight, there are always people in there. And there are all different ages. Yeah, but also say, I live in the Bay Area, which is also a high-density, like population area and movies clear out by the end of the first weekend well normally they do but i was i'm honestly i've been very pleasantly surprised by how full that theater is every time i go see it and how vocal the crowd is when they're watching it i've never seen it where there's just been a silent audience well going back to what elizabeth said about movies clear out after the first weekend that also goes back into the money thing right because Mm -hmm. a lot of studios have deals with the theaters 
that the longer the movie is in the theater, the more money the theater makes and the less money the studio makes. Yep. That's one of the reasons why prices are going up in theaters. Uh, George Lucas famously had the deal that's like for the first 90 days, he got like 85% of the profits for the Star Wars movies. Yep. And so that's why they went in the theaters for fucking ever. Because A, they made money. And B, the theater was like, we need to make a little bit of money off of this damn thing. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the money people that we have in Hollywood now is not the same as the money people we had in Hollywood 20 or 30 years ago. Definitely. We have hedge fund manager now who are more concerned with the profit than how to tell a story. I know on the Phantom Mentals podcast, uh, Julia has the um, the 11 things for adaptations, or the 11 rules by uh, David Selznick. Yes. Oh, Selznick? Mm-hmm. We used to have money people that actually understood how to tell a story. Yeah. Nowadays, most of them can barely read a book, probably. I wouldn't go that far, but... I mean, it, it is more of a numbers-crunching game, right. I think, now than a storytelling game as far as, like, what's getting a reboot or what's not. Yes. Um, marketing. Modern marketing yes. is really driving this, I think. Yeah. To a disturbing degree. Like, yes, marketing has definitely. always been involved, but not to the degree that it is now. Yeah, I'm talking, like, these, these like, $100 million marketing campaigns. Yeah. Like, or, it, it, like, half the film's budget is just getting... Because, you know, like, our... Because our um, news cycle is so fast, and right. we're so oversaturated with content, just to get something noticed is such an investment. And I really feel like, like there, we need to find a solution to this specific problem because it's going to kill our film industry. It, it is, and actually, when you look at a budget of a film, nine times out of ten, the PR or marketing budget isn't included. Isn't even included, and that's like another hundred million dollars. Yeah, and then like to bring this back to our topic theme, like this is the reason why we get so many remakes and reboots is because nobody's willing to take a risk. They have to know they're going to make back that hundred million they spent on marketing. Right, because business one on one, you want to make the money back. Right. Yes. Making money is generally good. Well, that's also the basic precept of Hollywood to some extent. Yes. Okay. Um, it's time to wrap this up. We're running out of time. Yep. <laughs> one of us is hungry. Oh, well, that's the first. Um, I told you I was hungry before this started. Uh, you forgot, didn't you? No. Anyhow. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we're going to bring this to a close. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, this has been Cinematic Release for the Fundamentals. Join us next time as we cover OJ Made in America and Bend It Like Beckham. What? Bend It Like Beckham. Really? Yes. <gasps> Oh, it's one of my favorite movies. If you want, I uh, you can jump in and move with me and Bo. We'll talk later. I just might. I saw it with my soccer team during a tournament <laughs> okay. when I was 13. You know what? You two can talk later. We have a time yeah. limit. <laughs> All right, we got to go. All right, we'll catch you guys later. Bye. Bye, guys.